This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Are we supposed to get married? I'm going to just swipe I just want somebody to share my life with. And I couldn't go back. And like, that was the moment where I was like, this is emotional stuff. You can keep waiting for the fairy tale, or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you've read my advice in the LA Times, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Damona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another timely episode of Dates and Mates. We all know that successful relationships thrive on compatibility and vulnerability and intimacy. But talking to your partner about finances can be downright scary. Don't worry, though. We have financial therapist Amanda Clayman here to put your fears to rest. She'll illuminate how money fears show up in dating and relationships and give us the tools to have a healthier outlook on finances for ourselves and for our partners. And she'll tell us about how her $19,000 haircut actually led her on a path to becoming a financial therapist herself. But first and foremost, we've got a dish. The big headline today is, feel like something is missing in your life? Maybe it's time for a reset relationship. Then in Dear Demona, I will tackle the burning question, is an ancient response on a dating app still a valid response? (laughs) I'm so excited to serve you up this dish. D's dating dish. Stylist Magazine suggests that a reset relationship could help you rediscover the spark you've been missing. This article looked at a number of studies around how people are feeling coming out of the pandemic. It turns out that a lot of us want to make what they call big life changes, such as quitting a job, ending a relationship. 72% would prefer their life to change significantly rather than go back to how it was before COVID-19. And a new study from Bumble and Plenty of Fish said that almost half of single people are craving a reset in their dating life. So what is a relationship reset? It's a relationship that is all about serving your own need to refresh your life and get yourself out of a funk. It's not that different from a rebound relationship, except for what you're rebounding from is this pandemic, right? But reset relationships aren't only a pandemic phenomenon. They actually can happen at any time in your life when you feel stuck. And I loved this article because it cited how people were using dating apps and new dating techniques to get under there and figure out what do they really want in a relationship? How do they want to move forward? How do they want to live their lives? And you've heard me say on the show before that I feel like a relationship is the biggest decision you will make in your life. It affects your finances, which we'll be talking about later. It affects your mental health, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks. It affects your job, where you live, your family, like so many things really do hinge on this decision that a lot of times we leave up to chance. So I was a huge fan of this 
concept of a reset relationship. My suggestion, however, is that you don't look at it as a temporary thing. You look at it as a mindset shift that has happened that is potentially going to change the entire trajectory of your life. Now, don't get panicked. I know that sounds like a lot, but you can make these changes in small incremental steps. So in this article, they cited a woman named Catherine who downloaded Tinder as a way to change up her dating habits. That might be just a change in itself to download a new app for any of you listening. And soon she realized that the people she was matching with weren't actually her usual type. (laughs) I'll dissect that usual type in a minute. And she said originally she was skeptical, but in the end, it really felt refreshing to her. Kind of the point of a reset, right? And she found new excitement in dating again. She said probably for the first time in two years because she wasn't doing it like she had before the pandemic. But now she's mindfully going into dating with a completely new approach. And just that opening up the possibility and asking these questions, like all of those fields that you have selected on your dating profile that you think are deal breakers, are must-haves. If you just pause and wonder, what if? What if that belief wasn't true? Like, it's short king spring, (laughs) y'all. Have you heard this? Short king spring, you know, Tom Holland and Zendaya and Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman. There's so many (laughs) of these shorter guys that are with taller women that have confidence that are super sexy, that have successful relationships where the height doesn't matter. Yet still, all the time, I hear, must be six feet or taller. I won't date a short guy. Or he has to be taller than me in heels. Like, whatever these rules are. Like, who wrote these rules? Did you write these rules? Did society write these rules? Do these rules still apply to you? So I really want you to focus this week on what are those must-haves, what are those deal-breakers, and really look at them from the lens of now and the lens of your future. And not just because this is a belief I held in the past, or this is my type, this is who I've been attracted to in the past, because we will tend to just attract the same people again and again and again. And if it didn't work that well the last time, maybe you should ask yourself, is it time for a reset? Maybe something needs to change, because maybe that type isn't serving me anymore. And what could my future look like if I made a different choice, if I explored a little bit more? What if? And that reset in your dating life could lead to a tremendous reset in the way that you live your life in the future. Are you looking for your reset relationship? Then you need the Profile Starter Kit to get you online easily and onto your dating success story. You can get yours free from me at datesandmates.com. When we come back, financial therapist Amanda Clayman will be here with us to talk about love and money. And then later in the show, I'll be answering the question of the week. And dear Demona, just want to remind you, you can always send in your questions to me via DM at Demona Hoffman, or you can text me or leave me a voicemail at 424-246-6255. I want to hear from you. But in the meantime, stick around for more Dates and Mates. Welcome back. I am here with financial therapist Amanda Clayman. Amanda specializes in the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral aspects of our financial well-being. 
She's the host of the recurring Death, Sex, and Money podcast series, Financial Therapy with Amanda Clayman, and she's authored several financial wellness courses for LinkedIn Learning. Her advice has been featured in CNBC, Fox News, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Real Simple, Forbes, and so much more. And now she's here for the first time. Please give big smooches to my friend, Amanda Clayman. Hey. It's so nice to see you virtually when we can't do this in person. But man, the last conversation that you and I had in real life, my wheels started turning because as you were talking about this concept of financial therapy and your show, your your series with financial therapy with Amanda Clayman, with Death, Sex and Money, I was just like, oh, this really does impact everything else in death, sex, and money. So speaking on the sex topic, (laughs) (laughs) you and I both say money is really a proxy for other things, right? It's when couples argue, it's not really about money, right? (laughs) It's about all these other things. It's also about money. That's the funny thing about money is like we project all of the stuff onto it. And it also kind of like in terms of just how our brains and, and bodies work, like Everything that is programmed into us in terms of survival also gets mapped onto money. So it our our struggles with it, our conversations about it, our conflicts about it, it's like it takes us back to our most feral being. Yes. And that's interesting because, you know, you talk about finances. I talk about dating. And I would say both of those <laughs> topics bring us to that point. And so it's interesting. I've been getting a lot of questions, actually, on the show about finances, especially at this time, Amanda, as people are like, you know, there's been a lot of financial insecurity. There's Mm -hmm. the Great Resignation. A lot of folks are dealing with medical debt. And so I've been getting a lot of questions about that. Like, I got this question the other day. Is it wrong for me to exclude people who have debt? from my dating pool like that's one of the questions on okcupid yeah would you date someone with significant debt and they were like is it shallow of me to say no i don't really know how to answer that question do you so for some people if a, a potential partner does have debt that makes them feel incredibly vulnerable about their own security. And anything that makes us feel vulnerable is obviously our our business and something that we can set boundaries around. But I wouldn't say that because it's a red flag for someone or a deal breaker for someone that it necessarily is a deal breaker for another person. Do you think there are any universal financial red flags? For me, when I think about red flags, I think about them more in terms of process. And so I look at red flags as something like if a person is really secretive and they won't disclose things even when when you ask them to, that's a red flag for me because that that shows me something about how that person is going to be open to the kind of partnership that I have in mind for my potential mate someone who won't engage with you in the way that you want to be able to talk about and process what's on your mind and in your heart and coming up in your life when you think about money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do find it is so personal. And it's interesting how these, these triggers come up as you are going through relationship. So many of them come up relationally. And Like, I'll give you an example of a a friend 
of mine who is now in her second marriage. In her first marriage, it's funny because she comes from wealth. She had a solid career, but she was always really, really selective about how she spent her money to the point where like when you would travel with her, you were like pinching pennies and feeling like you were compromising on everything because everything was outside of her comfort zone. I've heard you say when somebody is really frugal, that's actually a sign of something else underneath. It's not just like, I think we think a lot about people that spend overspend. And I know you've had experiences with that in your past. Well, I can't wait to get into your story. But when you're withholding spending, what is that meaning? So I, I love in the example with your friend, the characterization was that something was outside of her comfort zone. Or that everything, it seemed like, was outside of her comfort zone. And so she was bringing this kind of anxious intensity to what maybe should have been a simpler choice, or we feel like is a simpler choice. And absolutely, this is where kind of like our inner set of experiences and meaning and and sort of strategies that make sense to us, where sometimes it feels like our insides are not quite matching the outside. So when you think of something like frugality, for example, we can differentiate between frugality being a strategy to be really careful with your means and your resources in a way of paying extra close attention. Or we can think of frugality as a a rigid behavior where the frugality is not matched to the circumstances so that we can see kind of the extra energy that's going into something that kind of, if we're looking at it from the outside, doesn't quite make sense if we were trying to, to make that behavior make sense. But for the person inside of the behavior, frugality may have a totally other purpose. For example, a lot of people who need a high degree of control in their financial lives, it's because control is the antidote. Sometimes we think it's going to be the antidote to feeling anxious. So Mm -hmm. if anxiety then exert control is sort of the loop that's playing in that person's mind and that's being expressed in their relationship with money. I've also heard you say that it also is this feeling of indulgence in self-care in things that are really actually kind of foundational. We feel sometimes like we don't deserve that or that feels like too much if we're spending that on ourselves and that's not something that is an absolute necessity. What I would like to say to everyone is that we all have money stuff. So I think stepping back and being like, this is all very personal. How do I want money to work for me? And sort of take the decision making into a clear and neutral place. And obviously I'm talking about the way that we like allocate our money. And, and sort of give our money direction to do that outside of all those times when kind of old stories and old obstacles are going to jump up in the way and tell us that we can't or we're bad or we're not worth it, et cetera. Like this is where where we can use the tool properties of money, like the ways that we can organize it, allocate it, negotiate, raise something by 10 percent, et cetera. We can kind of focus on those aspects to try to program self-care, for example, into our budget in a way that then we experience ourselves as being able to use money effectively to nurture, grow, take care of ourselves. Yeah, that's really important. 
And I know on the flip side, you've sort of had the experience of using money for that, but then getting yourself in over your head. Can you tell us about the $19,000 haircut and how you came into this line of work? Oh, yes. I took on a lot of my parents' anxiety about money without knowing it, that my parents had experienced real deprivation in their childhoods. And when they came into adulthood, they always felt like the wolf was at the door. And I didn't, I was a kid and I didn't have the ability to know if that was true or not true in terms of danger. But when I got to be a grown up, I noticed that I had a really hard time paying attention to money. That anytime I was, I was trying to like look at my cash flow, look at my expenses, even to make a, a deliberate decision about money, I, I just couldn't do it. I would get so triggered by it. And as a result, I was impulsive. I did a lot of emotional spending. I moved to New York with literally nothing in the bank. And so like wrote myself credit card checks to be able to like pay a deposit or pay a broker's fee. And the process of coming to terms with that, it all sort of came to a head when my mom gave me a really terrible haircut. And it turns out that the reason I asked her to cut with my hair was because I had bounced a check at my hairdresser and I couldn't go back. And like that was the moment where I was like, this is emotional stuff. Yeah. And you were at that point, $19,000 in debt. Yes. All of those checks that you were writing finally caught up to you. I had just been kind of carrying the debt for a long time and it had slowly crept up. Yeah. I hear you on that. I remember having so many arguments with my grandmother who was like, you know, depression era immigrant, Jewish immigrant family. And when I moved to LA, same, I had nothing in my bank account. I had paid my rent for one month. <laughs> I had enough money to pay half of my rent for the next month. No job, no savings. Like as a parent now, I'm like, how did my parents not like shake me and stop me? But I think some of that, some of that leap of faith is what helped me be able to kind of carve my own path. But she, I just was like, I'm going to put stuff on credit cards because yeah. this is how I have to live. And she was like, I don't understand. You don't have enough money to go out to drinks with some. But to me, it was an investment in my career, in my future. And I eventually was able to pay it off. But I actually have more fear now than I did. At that totally. <laughs> I look at myself like, who is that person who just like moved from Michigan to New York? Like, it'll all work out. And, and the fact is, it did. And I was thankfully not in trouble that was really serious or, or that I couldn't recover from, which is all to say that like financial problems and consequences can be very, very real. But where we can, I think that we should appreciate that there's a lot of on-the-job on the learning when it comes to money. And that there's a reason why young people don't see consequences the same way, because we do in some ways have to take on a lot of risk when we're that young. You know, it's interesting. I just saw an article yesterday that said that in New York City in particular, that women are out earning men now in New York City. And it's interesting that I feel like this is somehow correlated, Amanda, that I get a lot of female clients in New York who are like, I am really having a hard time meeting someone 
who is at my level, who who's not intimidated. And that we are also seeing that it's a place where women are gaining financial independence. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, because of the the uneven way that our expectations, our gender and, and relationship expectations are evolving. And there was a big old push for women to be empowered, to to be able to control their own destinies outside of their choice of a of a partner. And yet we we maybe weren't so so attentive to what needed to be changed in terms of what men were encouraged to do and how they were encouraged to to be compatible partners when their partner is not somebody who's kind of subordinate to them. Right. Or dependent on them. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of promise if we allow ourselves to have more more imagination and better tools for collaboration than the ones that we simply inherit as our expectations about how this is all supposed to work. And then if it doesn't, we feel bad about ourselves. Yeah, and I do think it is important, as I am a fierce advocate for women taking control of their dating destiny, of their of their career destiny and stepping into this place of power, which we have not had for mm -hmm. so many decades. I do think I'm with you, Amanda. Like it is time though to reevaluate. Then if that was what the rule of marriage was before, if it is no longer true, what else is not true? Right. What else needs to change in the dynamic of your relationship? And I do still see we are emotionally tethered to this old gender ideal. So yeah. there's still this expectation that I hear from a lot of my listeners of, well, now I need to find someone at my level or higher. And we know that women are earning advanced degrees at higher levels than men. We know now also women have more earning potential and that, let's hope, is can continue on the upswing. So I feel like it's unnecessary pressure to say then I need somebody who is at my financial earning level mm -hmm. or higher because at a certain point you're going to price yourself out. Right. And I feel like you tell me, Amanda, there are some other questions that need to be answered and other more important elements of the financial foundation of your relationship that go beyond just how much money does he make and, you right. know, what is his future earning potential? Yeah. Society's grow and change. And really, like, why would we necessarily bet on an old solution when it doesn't fit our current reality? Right. The situation is dynamic. It's changing. We are in a period, especially, especially like the effect of the pandemic, which mm -hmm. you've really yet to see how it will really affect our culture long term. And, you know, as we're talking about relationships and f the, f the way finances impact relationships now, I'd love to hear more about financial intimacy. You have, you have five qualities of financial intimacy. Talk us through top line what those are and how understanding them and navigating through them can make your relationship stronger. Yeah. So the five elements of a financially healthy relationship are, number one, that there's equality, meaning that both partners have equal decision-making power. After 
equality, we have inclusiveness. That means that both partners have to show up to this process. There's no opting out by one person. There's no pushing out by the other person. Next, we have transparency, which is how we make sure that both partners have access to the information that they need. And it doesn't mean that we can't negotiate areas for privacy, but even those those areas of privacy still have boundaries. Like we might say both partners have to agree not to open new accounts without talking to the other person or any expenditure above a certain point is going to get discussed. Do you believe uh, there's been an ongoing debate about whether couples should have joint accounts or separate accounts? Do you have a feeling on that either way? They all have advantages and, and disadvantages. Like, I think that the draw of having a joint account and two separate accounts is that once you decide what an hour's expense is and how much each partner is going to contribute to that joint bucket, then people are able to make the decisions that they want to make. It's funny because prior to getting married, I would say I was more on the like, I have my stuff and you have your stuff. And I think that really came from like, if we're going to do financial therapy here, <laughs> I think that came from, I worked really hard for my stuff. Yeah. like, And there was an evolution. Like my husband finally was like, if we're going to be married, we're going to need to have joint finances. We have, we bought a house. We bought a house before we were married, um, which my parents did not approve of. <laughs> but we, at that point, had joint expenses. And so we already were financially entangled. And it was like, well, the next logical step is we should. I, I think that was a road to transparency as you talk mm -hmm. about this step. You also just illustrated the next two points so perfectly. I did. Which are flexibility and sustainability. So flexibility means that we allow ourselves to change. We allow our decisions to evolve, that a level of sort of exposure and vulnerability that may not feel right for you at one period in the relationship may become more right for you as time goes on or you switch it around. There's like the point is we can change all of these things. There's no right or wrong thing that we have to stick to. And the sustainability part is like it just it has to work enough for both of you. <laughs> like if one person is having like everything is wonderful and the other partner is like, I cannot stand to live under this tyranny. You know, your money may look OK, but trust me, that is showing up somewhere else in the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I hope that when we talk about it, that it's real. You know, that when people are having conversations with each other, that they can respect the fact that money is reaching deep down into your psyche. Like every time you're trying to make a decision that's outside of your regular pattern stuff, like it's not just, you know, what's the present and future value of this money. Ha 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 ha. Like we we are not automatons. We make a lot of these decisions really based on gut. And even sometimes speaking of gut, whether we're hungry in the moment or whatever else is going on with us in our our human life. So just to cut ourselves some slack and make the best of it and and have fun where we can.
I love that. I love the work that you do. And I love how you really show people how improving their relationship with money can improve their relationship with themselves and in turn then with the people that they love. Thank you. I try and that is truly my passion. Thank you so much for joining me, Amanda. Y'all need to get hooked up with Amanda's financial advice. You can find her on Instagram at Amanda Clayman or check out our website, amandaclayman.com to learn more about private coaching and courses. We'll be sure to put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. In a moment, I'll be back to answer the following listener question. What do you do if you've been zombied and someone who ghosted you finally texts back? Ooh, it's a real one. Stick around. You know I've always got you covered in your dating dilemmas, and you can send your questions to me anytime via DM at Damona Hoffman, or you can leave me a voicemail or text at 424-246-6255. Let's get into the question of the week. Dear Damona. Damona, help me. This one comes to me from our VIP group. She says, what are the rules of thumb for continuing a conversation after a person takes a long time to respond back? For example, and get this, y'all, this is a new level of a long time. She says, I got a response to a basic message that I sent this past June. Should I respond right away or should I wait a few days? I've also had people respond back recently after I sent an initial message in 2019. I've also had a person respond to my initial message, then ghost me for about a year, start talking again, and then ghost me Again, any suggestions? Oh, well, all of the suggestions. First of all, I will say this is a pattern, is it not? When you are having this thing happen again and again. And look, I know ghosting is super, super common. And people also have different definitions of ghosting. Like, is it ghosting if you just sent one message and they don't respond? Is it ghosting if you've been talking for a while and then you say, hey, we should meet up and then they stop responding? Is it ghosting if they freaking stand you up the night of the date? And this is one of the things I hate the most about dating culture today, and I'm on a mission to stop it. But in the meantime, I need your help. <laughs> I, need, I need warriors out here on the front lines to end the battle against ghosting. So the situation that this person is talking about is what they now call zombieing. When you have been talking with someone, they ghost and then they come back. And this has increased substantially in the course of the pandemic because there was so much uncertainty of like, I don't even know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I don't know if I should wear my mask, not wear my mask. Can I go to my mom's house? What if she doesn't have the vaccine? What about my friends that are not vaccinated? There was just so much confusion that persists. We're coming out of it. But there are so many micro decisions and so many high risk decisions that we had to make on a daily basis that I think people didn't know their ass from their elbow for two years. <laughs> Just I'm speaking in major generalizations, but but stay with me for a minute because that really showed up in dating in people not knowing. Do I like this person? Do I want to engage with this person? Should we continue talking? Should I even be on a dating app? Oh no, wait, I got COVID. I can't date. They didn't know how to show up for you, they could barely show up for themselves. So that's a little bit of what you're seeing and why 
so many of these things have happened. I don't know about that person in 2019. That's just a jerk. So forget that person. But in general, you get to make the rules of how you want to communicate with someone. And you also can show someone how you deserve to be treated by the way that you communicate with them and how you communicate your expectations. I would expect that a decent person would respond back, not after two years. Now, other things that you might not consider, they may have been off the app. I've been dealing with this with a client who has been on the same dating app on and off for many years. And there were messages in her inbox from years ago, from way back, that just got overlooked at the time or because she wasn't active on the app at that time. So it's possible that some of these messages, depending on which app you're on, because on certain, like on OkCupid, you can send a message to someone. You can like someone without it being a mutual match. On a Bumble, that's not happening because, well, your beeline will disappear. But beyond that, they can't message you unless you have both said, okay, we're talking. So that's where it gets, the nuance gets problematic because it's like, okay, they opted in and then they disappeared. But if there was never an opt-in from them, they may just not have been active on the app. They may have already been in a relationship. This is the thing that I really want to emphasize because I see people getting so caught up in like, oh, well, I sent five messages and I got two responses. Uh, actually, that's a really great response rate because we don't know what's on the other side of that profile that we're looking at and telling ourselves all kinds of stories about. We don't know what's really going on in that person's head. We don't know how available they really are for a relationship. We don't know if they're even a good relationship match for us. We're just at the beginning of discovery. So I really want you to treat these messages just like coins in the fountain. You toss them in and you, you make a wish. And if your wish comes true, that's great. If it doesn't come true, it was only a penny. And we have to increase the volume of messages to get more responses back. So to answer your question, with all of these zombies that come back from the dead and are like, oh, I'm available now, you have to ask yourself first, is this someone that I still connect with? Like knowing what I know, do I still want to give them my time? And then I would suggest you put a clock on it. Like if they start going back into that same pattern again, thank you, unmatch next. If you look at their profile and you're like, there wasn't even anything special here. There wasn't much to go on. I'm just now getting this message back and considering this person because, hey, it's a message in my inbox. I would say you don't owe that person anything. If they didn't give you the respect of a response back, you don't owe them a response in return. And I'm always saying how your time and your energy, those are really valuable resources. And we can waste a lot of time. So much of the dating exhaustion that I see today comes from messaging. People are like, oh, it's like dating apps are exhausting. Dating apps are not exhausting. Messages are exhausting. Go nowhere messages are exhausting. Zombies are exhausting. Ghosting is exhausting. That's what's exhausting. So really conserve your energy there. And beyond that initial message, only engage with those that you really have an investment in meeting because 
Otherwise, you're going to be putting out a lot more energy. I mean, even just asking this question, you're thinking about, should I respond? Shouldn't I? What should? What, what if? Is this person a good person? Maybe they had an excuse. And like already, that's probably more time than you should put into it. So maybe you have a gem in there, a diamond in the rough that just fell through the cracks. But probably you have a bunch of confused people that maybe didn't have clarity at that time and might not have clarity now, but are shooting their shot, clearing up their inbox. And your time may be better spent on finding some new fish in that sea. I hope you enjoyed episode 406 of Dates and Mates as much as I enjoyed making it for you. By the way, if you love the show, can I ask you for a small favor? Can you share this episode with a friend? I know so many people are struggling with finances and relationships, and I really want to be of service. We could all use a little more love in our lives right now, so why not share the love? Speaking of, you know I'm here to help you, right? Yeah, you. Don't be shy. If you have a question, chances are hundreds of other listeners are thinking something similar, and you asking the question could help you and so many others on their journey to love. You can send me a DM with your question at Demona Hoffman on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call or text me, 424-246-6255. I just want to shout out our listener from the 909 who found this show from listening to me on Friends Like Us. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for sending me some love and texting me. And I would love to hear from each and every one of you. You can let me know how you found the show, which guests and topics you loved, and how I can help you on your journey. Make sure you follow Amanda Clayman at Amanda Clayman on Instagram and check out her financial courses and advice on her website, amandaclayman.com. We'll be back next Tuesday with Ken Page of the Deeper Dating Podcast. He will bring us some much needed optimism about finding love today. Until then, I wish you happy dating. <laughs>